Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And today we are continuing our story about Fender. And I spent a lot of time in the last episode kind of setting the foundation, leading all the way up to the first solid body electric guitar that Fender ever released, the Esquire. And then I hinted a little bit about the Telecaster, the follow-up to the Esquire, the the first electric guitar that Fender made that had two electric pickups, not just one. We're going to talk more about the Telecaster and, of course, the Stratocaster. Then I'm going to just be frank with you guys. I'm going to be speeding through kind of the years after Fender was purchased by a major media company up through to today uh, because it's kind of a sad story in many ways. And also it just gets to be one of those things. It's like any tech company where I start feeling like all I'm doing is listing off all the different variations of the product they came out with. So like if I were doing the Apple story and then they came out with the Apple 5, like that gets tiring after a while. So uh, same sort of thing holds true here. All right. So talked about the Esquire guitar, the single pickup uh, electric guitar. And then the double pickup Esquire with a truss rod became the Fender Broadcaster. But in 1951, that had to change names and it became the Telecaster. So the Telecaster's two pickups changed things quite a bit, which in the end means these guitars produce a different sound than Esquire guitars do. Now note, I did not say they produce a better sound. It's different. I think both guitars produce really good tones Uh, if they're paired with the right amplifier and they have a good musician playing them. But they are different. So why would you even include two pickups instead of just one? Why would you have one of those pickups near the bridge, you know, at the base of the guitar's face, and another one near the neck uh, of the guitar, where where the neck joins the face, the body of the guitar? How does that change the nature of the sound? Well, think of how a guitar string is anchored, right? So... On one end of a guitar string, you have the nut. That is the end at the end of the neck, right? Where you go, where a string goes over the nut and then it goes to the tuning pegs or the respective tuning peg. On the other side, you have the bridge on the body of the guitar. And those are the two anchor points. Pickups react to string vibrations. So if the pickup is close to an anchor point for those strings, those strings are not moving with as much variation as they would closer to the middle of the string. You know, it's just if you, the closer you are to an anchor point, the less movement you're going to see overall. The anchor points become what we call nodes, and the points that have the greatest variation in movement, the points where the string moves the most, not faster, still moving at the same frequency, but it's it's covering more ground, you might say. Those are anti-nodes. So again, the frequency remains the same. Otherwise, you would have a string that's playing different notes along different lengths of it. Uh, We'll get a little bit more into that with harmonics in a second. Um, But harmonics are really complicated. In fact, let's do it now because I've already introduced the concept. A vibrating string has harmonics or overtones. So if you pluck a string, the frequency you'll hear most prominently is what we call the fundamental frequency of that string. And that is determined by factors like the string's weight, or its mass if you prefer, 
the tension that the string is under, and how long the string is. But there are also harmonics present. So, for example, if you strum an open string, meaning you're not, you don't have your fingers on any of the frets, you're just strumming an open, tuned string, the second harmonic is an octave higher than whatever note the string is playing. So if you're playing a G note on on an open G string, then the second harmonic is G, but it's the octave higher than what the open string is. That harmonic uh, represents the fundamental frequency you would have heard if you held down the G string halfway down its length and then played it again. You would then have that higher octave G. So we perceive all of these harmonics as a single note when it's played on a string like this. The higher the harmonic, the lower the amplitude is, amplitude being volume. So uh, that's one of the reasons why we don't perceive this as a bunch of different notes all played at once. We have a fundamental frequency that's played at twice the amplitude of the second harmonic. So those harmonics shape the tone or timbre of a note, but they don't uh, determine the actual frequency. So positioning a pickup near the neck of a guitar emphasizes certain harmonics more than others, because if you look at those harmonics, they all look like little sine waves. And the points where the sine waves cross over the center part, those are your nodes. That's where the string's not really moving at those locations. And then the peaks and valleys, those are the anti-nodes where the string is moving the most. So by positioning your pickup at a different point along the guitar, you are putting it underneath certain areas that might be nodes for one harmonic or anti-nodes for another harmonic. That means those harmonics will either be suppressed in the case of nodes or enhanced or at least passed through in the case of anti-nodes. And this is what shapes those sounds. And it means that if you have two pickups on your guitar, and they're at, you know, two very different locations where you're going to have a different sample of harmonics, switching between those pickups is going to produce a very different sound, even if you're playing the exact same note. Or maybe it's not very different. It is different. It again also depends upon the quality of the amplifier you've plugged the guitar into. So uh, there are a lot of things that determine the qualities of the sound, and a lot of that has to do with build quality. Now, I would love to go into a full explanation of harmonics and physics, but frankly, it's beyond me. I mean, uh, if I'm being honest, uh, I can grasp the basic concepts behind harmonics, but I've never really taken any classes in acoustics. I haven't really studied harmonics in uh, in a deep way. I've very kind of a cursory way. So it quickly gets away from me after that. And and there's some subtleties there uh, that are in both in physics and in music theory, which are very closely related. And I am not an expert in either. So rather than bowl m- my way through there and make terrible mistakes along the way and, and really discourage all the musicians out there, uh, I'm just going to admit, this is the point where my my knowledge ends. I get it up to there. But the important thing to remember for electric guitars is that the location of the pickup means the magnets will detect certain harmonics more than they would others, and that shapes the quality of the sound we hear. So we still hear them as single notes for each string, but the timbre of that note will change based upon which harmonics are coming through and which ones are not because of the pickup's location. Now, your standard Telecaster has a three-position switch, 
And if you listen to my last episode, you know that the Esquire, the single pickup, it was a single coil pickup and it only had one of them, also had a three-position switch. But the Telecaster's different. The original Telecaster switch had three positions that did different, very different things. The first position would let you choose uh, both the bridge pickup and the neck pickup together in parallel to send a signal out to the rest of the guitar, uh, being the volume knob and the tone knob and then the output jack. The second and third position uh, were for the neck pickup alone. So there was no position that would let you play just the bridge pickup for the original Telecaster. If you had it in position one, it was the bridge pickup and the neck pickup. If you had it in position two or three, it was just the neck pickup. Um, And the difference between positions two and three for the neck pickup had to do with extra capacitance. The uh, neck pickup had a chrome cover on it, and this sapped some of the capacitance from the circuitry. And it meant that you lost some bass when you switched to the regular position two. Going to position three would add in extra capacitance so you get a little more bass in the sound that you would play. So the actual quality of the sound would change. But uh, again, there was no way to have just the bridge pickup in the original 1951 Fender Telecaster. The 1952 model changed this so that you had one bridge pickup selection and then two different neck pickup selections, but there was no setting that would let you use both pickups together. So the only big difference there was that instead of having position one be bridge and neck, position one was just the bridge. Otherwise, it was pretty much the same as the original Telecaster. The different positions allow some harmonics to come through to the signal or prevent those harmonics, depending upon the specific harmonics and which pickup you're going with, and that would change the quality of the sound. Uh, You get a very twangy sound, typically, with a Telecaster, at least uh, if you're playing it without the volume turned all the way up. You know, the more volume you crank up on the guitar when you're sending it out to the amplifier, the more distortion you're going to get. So if you're if you're careful with that volume knob, you can get that nice twangy Telecaster sound, a very, a very signature sound for the Telecaster. Uh, the Telecaster also had knobs for volume and for tone. And the Telecaster, by the way, sold for $189.50 in 1951. So that's like $1,844 or so in today's money. So again, not unheard of for Fender electric guitars. By this time, Fender was spending his hours, Leo Fender, the man, was spending his hours tinkering and tweaking electronics, which I suspect is what made him the most happy about his job, since that's what he was doing all the way up till the day he died. He handed off management, uh, like day-to-day management of Fender, to a guy named George Fullerton in 1948. Fullerton had been a machinist at Lockheed Aircraft before he joined Fender, and like Leo Fender himself, Fullerton made significant contributions that made the Telecaster possible. Fender continued to work on new designs. He uh, actually worked on a design that led to the first electric bass guitar called the Precision Bass. Before the introduction of the Precision Bass in 1951, bands were depending upon the upright double bass to provide those notes. This is an enormous upright stringed musical instrument. It's huge, very cumbersome and bulky. And like the guitar, it was facing the problem of the fact that it did not produce as much volume as some of the other instruments in these big bands, so it was becoming hard to hear it. 
and it was on the, in danger of becoming obsolete because if you can't hear any notes that are being played, why lug this enormous thing around? Bender decided to try and do for the double bass what he had done for the guitar. The precision bass was the result. It's in a guitar form factor. So, you know, you've seen electric bass guitars. They, they look like regular guitars, except they have four strings, not six strings. Uh, your standard guitar has six strings. And the precision bass had some other uh, elements to it that made it look more like a guitar and less like an upright bass. It had frets on the neck of the guitar. The double bass doesn't have frets. So you still change the notes on a double bass by pressing down on a, on a string at a certain point around the neck, but you didn't have frets to guide that or to really cut off the notes. This is why he called it a precision bass, because the frets made it easy to create precise notes, not approximations. That did change the quality of the bass notes a musician would produce, and not just because of that precision. The electrical nature had a different sound to it. But that sound would become one of the most important components in modern music across tons of genres, from country to rock to punk to funk music. It literally contributed to changes in music and rhythm, creating opportunities for musicians to explore new sounds. The precision bass of today has a split single coil pickup. So the wiring is split in two. Uh, So you have the top two strings for the bass sharing one half of this single coil pickup and the bottom two strings sharing the other half and they're offset. The uh, two halves of the, the coil pickup are offset from each other. According to Fender, this creates, quote, big, beefy sound, more tonal versatility and balanced output across each string, end quote. Bass strings are of a much heavier gauge than regular guitar strings, and I imagine they disrupt the magnetic field of the pickup more dramatically than the strings of their guitar cousins. So this split pickup is probably to help account for that or to to accommodate that. And music was changing around this time. So in the 30s and 40s, popular music spanned genres like blues, jazz, gospel, big band music, folk music. African-American influences in music were really growing at this time, and black musicians were synthesizing African musical traditions with musical instruments that could trace their ancestry back to Europe. This music, which in its early days really shaped jazz and swing and blues, uh, were later adopted for, or maybe we should say it was appropriated by white musicians. Uh, and they began to take those same sort of techniques and apply them to music for their audiences. Uh, so goes the long history of popular music in the United States. And the styles were evolving with new techniques shaping the sound, giving rise to newer genres like rhythm and blues and then rock and roll. Electric guitars and bass guitars would end up playing a pivotal role in those genres. And so while Fender, Leo Fender, was largely focused on accommodating musicians who worked in in the genre of Western swing as his target audience, he would find out his guitars would soon become the foundation for entirely new movements in music. The Telecaster and some Esquires were a part of that, but the real game changer would be Fender's next electric guitar, the Stratocaster which I'll tell you more about in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Now, before I get to the Strat, 
which is what we call the Stratocaster. I feel like a poser saying that. I guess I am a poser saying that, but it gets tiring saying Stratocaster and Telecaster over and over. It was in the early 1950s when Fender was offering the Telecaster that things turned sour with the Radio Tell company. That was the company that that Fender had been using to distribute his guitars. He felt Radiotel was focusing on the lap steel guitars at the expense of the Telecaster and the Esquire. You know, those were the Spanish-style guitars. And Fender was feeling like the company wasn't taking him seriously with those models. And there was even a point where Fender, the company, was forced to reimburse dealers who had bought Esquire and Telecaster guitars, only to discover that those guitars were full of termites. It turned out that Radiotel had stored the solid-body guitars in a garage and hadn't really taken good care of them before shipping them out. So Fender was forced to write off about 500 guitars because of that. Leo Fender made the decision to end the agreement with Radiotel, and in 1953, he created a new distribution company called Fender Sales. Donald Randall, the salesman who had come from Radiotel, would head up that distribution company, and other Radiotel salespeople and executives actually came over as well. So I guess the guys that came over must not have been any of the ones that had anything to do with that bug situation. All right, now let's get to the Stratocaster. In the world of modern music, I would say there are two guitars, general guitar models, that tend to rise to the top of the heap when you're talking about the musical instruments that defined rock and roll. And they are the Gibson Les Paul and the Fender Stratocaster. Uh, The two guitars are very different, both in circuitry and the sounds they produce. And again, I'm not going to tell you which one is better. I don't believe either one is better than the other. They're different, and they make very different sounds, and I love the music that both of them can create. Uh, It all depends upon the effect you want. The differences in sound come down to a few factors. And they depend on more than just the electric pickups, although that is a big part of it. So one of those is that the Gibson Les Paul has special pickups called humbuckers. And I talked about this in the Gibson episodes. They're called humbuckers because the design of those pickups is meant to eliminate the hum you get from electrical interference getting picked up by your electrical pickup in your guitar. Um, Because remember, electrical pickups essentially are working on the principles of electromagnetism. So if they are anywhere close to anything that's generating an electric field or a magnetic field, you can start getting this hum interference. And, uh, you know, once you amplify that, that comes through and it goes through to the speakers and you can hear it on the speakers. The Gibson guitars had these special humbucker coils, kind of had like these coils that were wired with opposite polarity so that uh, the collective interference the coils would pick up would actually cancel each other out. It's it's like they were out of phase with each other. And it's like a sound wave. If you have a sound wave and then you produce a sound wave that has equal and opposite peaks and valleys so that the peaks and valleys of one sound wave match up with the valleys and peaks of another sound wave, they cancel each other out. I explain more about that in the episodes about Gibson guitars, so you can go listen to that if you want to learn more about it. But speaking of humbuckers, I should mention... Fender actually attempted a few times to create systems that could emulate the humbucker sound without actually using humbucker pickups. The Baja Telecaster was such an instrument. Unlike the other Telecasters, this model actually had a four-position switch. The other ones were all three-position switches. And that fourth position would cause the neck and bridge pickups to work in series, not in parallel. So... 
If you remember the original Telecaster, if you had it in the first position, both the neck and the bridge pickups would send signals, but they sent them in parallel. So both sets of signals would go to the output jack. The serial approach meant that the signal, one of the pickups would pick up the signal and send that to the second pickup, which would then add it to its signal and then move that to the output jack. That does change the nature of the music, and it made the two pickups act kind of like a humbucker does. But that's the Baja Telecaster. So back to the Stratocaster. The Stratocaster has three single-coil pickups. There's one that's near the bridge, the bridge pickup. There's one that's called the mid pickup, and then there's the neck pickup. So the mid pickup is in between the bridge and the neck. Uh, Then there's the scale length of the Stratocaster versus the Gibson Les Paul. Scale length is the length of the strings measured from the nut to the bridge. The Gibson Les Paul has a shorter scale length. The string measures 24.75 inches from nut to bridge. The Stratocaster scale length is 25.5 inches. It is three quarters of an inch longer than the Les Paul. That changes not just the tone of the Stratocaster, but also the playability of it. So remember that a string's frequency, the note that it's going to produce when you pluck it, depends upon the thickness of the string, or its gauge, the length of the string, and the amount of tension on the string. Once you string a guitar, it's pretty hard to change the thickness or length of that string. But you can change the tension, either through the tuning pegs, or if you have a vibrato bar like the Stratocaster does, more on that in a second, you can do it that way. Or you can change it uh, just by, you know, again, tuning very slowly. So if you want to tune a Les Paul and a Stratocaster to the same tuning, you want both guitars to have the exact same tuning, you actually have to put more tension on the Stratocaster strings because it has a larger scale length. And the longer scale also means the space between frets on a Stratocaster is larger. So that might mean that if you have small hands, that playing a Stratocaster is more of a challenge to you than it would be with a Les Paul, because the frets are further apart from each other than they are on a Les Paul. The longer strings on a Strat make it a bit easier to bend the strings, so you can start to shape notes that way. And the longer scale is also one of the contributing factors to making the sound of a Stratocaster sound like a bell. It chimes almost. It's very clear when you have the settings uh, properly set and a a good amplifier. And it, it can be a little more jangly and clean than a Les Paul. You can pick out those notes much more easily. Uh, but a Les Paul creates a pretty iconic rock sound, frequently used in in harder rock, metal, that kind of stuff. Uh, the Stratocaster became incredibly popular guitar for all sorts of other types of rock, uh, especially things like surf music. I always think of the Stratocaster in relation to surf guitar. That's that jangly music you'll hear on those instrumental surf rock albums, stuff like Dick Dale and the Deltones or the Woggles or the Hate Bombs or uh, Manor Astro Man or Los Straight Jackets, the, they all are using guitars that uh, either are Stratocasters, they are copies of Stratocasters, or they are built on similar principles to Stratocasters. And more frequently than not, they are actual Fender Stratocasters. The Stratocaster today has a five-position switch to choose which pickups you want to use. Remember, there are three pickups. But originally... It did not have a five-position switch. Originally, it only had a three-position switch because Leo Fender really liked the idea of isolating each pickup. 
so that you were only going to hear the bridge or you were only going to hear the mid or you were only going to hear the neck. That, that was kind of his aesthetic. And so each position corresponded with one of the three pickups. But musicians found that if you position the switch between two real positions, like between the bridge and mid positions, you could actually get a new sound because it was combining the input from both pickups simultaneously. And so they were doing things like shoving stuff in their, their toggle switches to hold the position there and get the sound. Fender would finally respond to this in 1977 by creating a five-position switch so that people wouldn't be jamming, you know, matchbooks into their switches anymore. So the rearmost position is for the bridge pickup. You go up one, now you're at the bridge and mid together. You go up another, it's the mid uh, pickup all by itself. Go up another, it's mid and neck pickups. Then you go up to the last one, it's just the neck pickup. So each setting shapes the sound in a different way. And again, it's because of those harmonics. Now, you can you, you start to get a very clear and crisp sound toward the bridge and a more mellow, some would call it kind of a either warmer or muffled sound toward the neck. Uh, and again, that also depends upon you having other really good equipment, you know, a good amplifier when you're plugging in. Otherwise, the differences can be too subtle to tell if you don't have a really good amplifier. The Strat also has two tone controls in addition to a volume control. Cranking the volume up creates a really high gain sound. And, you know, you can get this really crunchy rock sound out of a Stratocaster if you turn that volume knob on the guitar very uh, all the way up. Um, but if you're setting it at a lower volume, you create these very clean tones. And it's so interesting that this one dial, just a volume dial, the, the amplitude of the signal you're sending out to the amplifier can have such a dramatic effect on the sound coming out of that guitar. I've watched videos of a guy going through this, and it was really amazing. He would just tweak the volume knob a little bit and generate very different sounds. The two tone knobs are meant for various pickup positions. Uh, one tone knob is really just for the neck pickup alone. So if you're using the neck, you would just use tone knob number one. If you're using the neck and the mid together, then you need both tone knobs to roll off the treble. And for the mid down to the bridge pickup, you would just use the second tone knob. Um, so the second tone knob commands the, the treble for the uh, bridge in the mid and the first tone knob for just the neck pickups. The Stratocaster debuted in 1954, and the body has curves called cutaways near the neck, which, uh, like the Esquire and the Telecaster, allows musicians to get access to those upper frets so they can do their squiggly diddly doos. The Stratocaster also had a synchronized tremolo bar, or the whammy bar. It's more appropriately called a vibrato. I talked about that in the last episode. That would let a player dynamically change the amount of tension on a string, which allows the player to affect the tone of the note, the pitch of the note, to increase or decrease the pitch, to bend the note using this thing. Fender thought that the Leo Fender, he thought the Stratocaster was going to replace the Telecaster. So he's like, well, this is an upgrade. The Telecaster is going to go obsolete. And that uh, Fender as a company would just phase out the Telecaster. But the Stratocaster, one, did not catch on immediately. And some musicians just legitimately love the sound of the Telecaster. And it's not necessarily easy to replicate the Telecaster sound using a Stratocaster. And some people just developed this love of that Telecaster sound. So there was still a demand for the Telecaster even after the Stratocaster came out. 
One guy who really did help boost the profile of the Stratocaster was a rock star, an unlikely one, named Buddy Holly, or that's what we all call him. Some of you may not know who that was, and I don't judge you for it. Buddy Holly was an early rock and roll musician who brought his, he, he got a, a Stratocaster way back in 1955 in Lubbock, Texas. He borrowed some money from his brother in order to buy it. And like the Telecaster, the Strat was mostly known as a musical instrument that was used by people who were making country and Western music. But Buddy Holly grew up in Texas, and that was the kind of music that was all around him, and he drew a lot of inspiration from that style of music when he started to put together his own band and create a new sound, which I'll talk about a little bit more in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Buddy Holly and the Crickets created a sound that put a nearly equal emphasis on lead guitar and rhythm. And by 1958, his music, his band's music, was at the top of the charts, and his guitar of choice was influencing many others to take a close look at the Stratocaster, particularly bands in England like the Beatles, who named their band partly because you had Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Holly would die in a tragic plane crash, Around 1 a.m. on February 3rd, 1959, that plane also had Richie Valens and J.P. Richardson, who is better known as the Big Bopper, in it. Together, those three musicians had made some of the most popular music in the early rock and roll era, and that day became known as the day the music died. It's also the subject of the song American Pie. The song, not the movie series. Putting tragedy aside... Buddy Holly really helped Fender sell a lot of Stratocasters. And the company created a new line of guitars and amplifiers that they were aiming uh, for the budget-conscious musician under a new brand called White. That was a tribute to Forrest White. He was uh, Fender's production manager. So now you have a much larger customer base coming to buy guitars all of a sudden. The rock and roll Emergence had inspired tons of kids to get into making music. And the Stratocaster became uh, one of the guitars of choice for a lot of those musicians. Fender, the company, tried to diversify a bit. They added some other instruments to their line, including electric mandolins. They had an electric violin for a short while. They also started making acoustic guitars. But most of these lines, including the white brand, were ultimately discontinued. Uh, They just didn't take off quite as much, and they were pulling a lot of focus from the electric guitar center. Now, they kept on making more uh, models of Telecasters and Stratocasters. You know, you typically call them by whatever year they came out, and some of them would tweak things slightly so they wouldn't be exactly the same. So that's why you have musicians who talk about the the pros and cons of the various model years for Telecasters, Stratocasters, that kind of stuff. Leo Fender also created a a jazz guitar that uh, got a lot of love in certain circles, but never reached the levels of popularity of the Stratocaster. And in 1964, Leo Fender's health took a turn for the worse, and he thought about retiring. So he offered to sell the company to Don Randall for the princely sum of $1.5 million. Randall, however, didn't really have the scratch together to buy a company at that price, so he told Fender, hang on, let me see if I can find a buyer. And he found one. That buyer was the Columbia Broadcasting System, better known as CBS. 
Yep, that CBS. CBS had a subsidiary company called Columbia Records Distribution Corporation, and that was the subsidiary that negotiated to acquire the Fender Electric Instruments Company for $13 million. They announced that deal on January 5th, 1965. The new company was originally called Fender CBS, but in 1966, the company changed its name to CBS Musical Instruments because it was going on a bit of a buying spree with other musical instrument companies. So uh, Fender as a brand and a division still existed, but it was no longer the name of the company. CBS started making big changes pretty early on with Fender. Uh, For one thing, there were some issues over at Fender Electric Instruments. The company had been growing in a very haphazard kind of way since its founding back in 1946. By the time CBS acquired Fender, there were offices and factories and distribution centers in 29 different buildings scattered across Fullerton, California. That's not a very efficient way to run a company. So CBS decided they wanted to consolidate that into a centralized facility. They made plans to build a huge facility, 120,000 square feet in size, and it would cost more than a million dollars. They finished it in 1966. CBS touted it as being a high-tech, dust-free manufacturing facility that could produce guitars at a much faster rate and meet demand. And you could argue that if you could do this and if you could maintain quality, then you could bring the, the price down on guitars, right? Because if it costs less to make them, you can still get your profit and sell them at a lower cost. And that will also attract more customers. So you actually end up making more money in the long run. That's if you can keep the quality up. CBS also sent along analysts to Fender to study how efficient Fender employees were when they were making instruments. And that started rubbing people the wrong way. Because a lot of people consider themselves, you know, craftsmen and artists. They're, they, they take great pride in what they do, and they don't want to compromise on quality for the sake of speed or efficiency. Forrest White, who I mentioned just a moment ago, would write in a book that the experts from CBS seemed to think that they had all the answers, and they were kind of disregarding the opinions and, uh, and expertise of people who worked for Fender. Now, I should say that White comes across as very opinionated in the various things I've uh, I've read that he has written. And uh, I don't know how unbiased his view was, but he certainly felt very strongly about this. White himself would leave the company a couple of years after CBS took over. uh, And it was over a disagreement with an amplifier that CBS wanted to produce. White felt that that amplifier failed to live up to the name and reputation of Fender. And rather than preside over the production of a product that he felt was substandard, he left the company. Fender continued to exist as a brand, obviously, and continued to manufacture guitars and various models and would occasionally update those models over time with some new features. You know, I mentioned that five switch uh, for uh, for the Stratocaster, or sometimes they would strip new features out if musicians gave feedback that said, this thing you've included on this guitar is terrible and it's pointless and you should take it out. Sometimes that did happen. But the updates and the new models were were rather infrequent. You didn't see as much innovation coming out of the company once CBS took over. And some Fender employees worried that the quality overall was taking a hit. And in fact, you'll see a lot of 
uh, forums out there about guitars written by musicians who say, yeah, Fender instruments in general, not just like a Stratocaster or a Telecaster or whatever, but in general from that era are of a lower quality than the ones that preceded the CPS takeover. Don Randall would resign in 1969, allegedly because he felt the politics of the company were too much to bear. It wasn't a question of the quality of the products for Randall, but it was more about how people would backstab each other and try to climb the corporate ladder, and he got tired of that. Leo Fender was retained as a consultant for many years, but he would leave Fender as well in 1970. Uh, Forrest White said that CBS executives rarely gave Leo Fender very much attention or respect. And so Fender would go on to work with a company that eventually became known as Music Man Incorporated. Uh, He started sort of consulting with them in 1974 and building instruments and, and components for them back at that time. And Music Man was founded by Forrest White and another former Fender employee named Tom Walker, who was the district sales manager over at Fender before he left to to found this company. Leo Fender would also form a new partnership with George Fullerton, the man he had given uh, management accountability to way back in the day. So this is in 1980, and Leo Fender and George Fullerton create GNL Incorporated that stood for George and Leo. Fullerton would cash out in 1986, but Leo stuck with it until he passed away in 1991, working until the day he died, and including the day he died. But now let's get back to Fender, the company, and brand. So if you listen to the Gibson episodes, you know there was a period during which Gibson employees were going through a very similar experience. There was this large company that comes in, acquires them, and tries to create a more mass manufacturing approach to what they were doing, and that as a result, some of the employees develop a lot of resentment, and there's a general feeling that the guitars that were produced in that era were of a general, just a lower quality than the earlier ones. The explosive popularity of rock and roll in the 60s had led to an unprecedented demand for electric guitars. So companies like Gibson and Fender were making these instruments that were in really high demand. So in some ways, This corporate move might have been necessary just to keep up pace with the demand for the products. However, that decrease in quality kind of balances things out. So those compromises made along the way made a lot of people unhappy, both in the company and customers of the company. In the 1980s, CBS was facing stiff competition from a new rival, not Gibson, but Japanese companies that were producing electric guitars for a lower cost than Fender or Gibson. And at first, CBS's solution was to shift manufacturing overseas to Korea. But the guitars that were being produced out of those facilities did not measure up to the quality Fender had established in the market. So they ultimately said, well, this isn't going to work. So then they changed the executive leadership at Fender. They they got some new leaders for that division. Uh, That would include William Schultz, who became the president of the division, and Dan Smith, who became the director for marketing of Fender. John McLaren became the new head of CBS Musical Instruments. That would be the uh, subsidiary company that would oversee Fender. And that executive team found that Fender's reputation was really starting to suffer, that musicians were seeking out older models of Telecasters and Stratocasters instead of new models because... They said the build quality was just better and the sound was better in those classic models. 
And so on close examination, it appeared that they were onto something. Dan Smith would later say, quote, we were brought in to kind of turn the reputation of Fender around and to get it so it was making money again. It was starting to lose money. And at that point in time, everybody hated Fender. We thought we knew how bad it was. We took for granted that they could make Stratocasters and Telecasters the same way they used to make them. But we were wrong. So many things had changed in the plant, end quote. So he's not necessarily saying that the employees were at fault, but that the changes that had been made over the previous decades were such that it was now impossible to make the guitars the way they had been made, uh, especially under the policies that CBS had created. In 1982, William Schultz scaled back on Fender guitar production, focusing primarily on creating reissues of limited editions of classic guitars from before the time when CBS bought the company. And Schultz also arranged for a new division within Fender called Fender Japan, which was a partnership with Kanda Shokai and Yamana Music as distributors. And a Japanese company called Fuji Gengaki got the license to produce Fender-branded guitars with the intent that they would only be sold in Japan. But the budget brand called Squire, named after the old Esquire guitar, uh, actually made in Japan, eventually became an export to the United States in 1983, so you can buy Squire guitars in the States, too. In March 1985, CBS was ready to offload Fender because CBS was trying to push off a possible takeover, and so they were looking to wait, uh, for ways to divest of certain things and really focus on protecting the company. So they chose to sell the Fender division to William Schultz and a group of investors for about $12.5 million. That's actually half a million dollars less than what CBS bought the company for decades earlier. So when you factor in inflation, they really did take a loss uh, from the purchase to the sale of that company. This new company became Fender Musical Instruments. But the manufacturing facility that CBS had bought, the 120,000-square-foot facility, was not part of this deal. The new company started its life deep in debt with no real U.S. base for manufacturing. The only Fender guitars being made right after the deal were in Japan. Schultz would cut nearly 90% of the staff at Fender, going from 800 employees to 90 Schultz then made the Fender Custom Shop in Corona, California, and he began to lure big-name musicians in with free or heavily discounted Fender instruments if they would in return appear in ads for Fender. And it took some time, but the company slowly began to build back up again, and they introduced the American Standards model for Strats and uh, Tellys, and then in 1991, Schultz would move the company headquarters away from its longtime home of Fullerton, California, to Scottsdale, Arizona. And by the, the, a little bit later, the company was opening up a new manufacturing facility in Mexico and Korea and China. By 96, the Corona plant, had grown out of this little custom shop, had grown up to 600 employees. So Fender was kind of on the rebound here. Schultz would oversee the company until 2005 when he would retire. He had made a lot of compromises, but he also managed to return Fender's reputation to where it had been before the CBS acquisition. William Mandelo, who was part of the same group that made that purchase from CBS, would become the new CEO of Fender. Since then, Fender has been able to get back on its feet, even while it's seen its competitor Gibson have to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, but I covered that story in the previous episode, so you can go listen to that if you want to find out why that happened. 
Fender also has guitar models that I didn't really get into in these episodes, but I feel like I should acknowledge the fact they do exist. It's not like it's just the Stratocaster and the Telecaster and the Esquire. Um, there's like the Jazzmaster, there's the Jaguar, which also was another important surf rock guitar. And they didn't quite approach the level of reverence given to the Stratocaster, but they're still important. And you can still buy Fender guitars to this day. Uh, one of these days, I am going to have to get one. I think. I really like the Fender sound. I love the Gibson sound too. I love them both. But um, there's something about the Fender that Stratocaster that has always really appealed to me. And that concludes these episodes. I know that I really flew through the last two decades of Fender, but that's because, again, uh, the story would have essentially been a new model of Stratocaster comes out and nobody likes it <laughs> because people felt that the the models that were produced under the CBS ownership were substandard, and uh, it took quite some time for that reputation to be repaired. But I would say that these days it has largely been repaired. I would also say that musicians still to this day try to seek out those vintage models when they can. You have a lot of collectors out there, and you have a lot of musicians who just swear by those early, early Telecaster and Stratocaster models, and that's all they want. They don't want a replica. You know, they don't want a reissue. They don't want a later model. They want the original but you got to shell out huge amounts of money for those. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a company, a technology, a person in tech, send me a message. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Hey, I noticed that that shirt you're wearing, it's looking kind of ragged. You know what you should do? You should go to tpublic.com slash techstuff. Get yourself a brand new Tech Stuff t-shirt gonna keep you nice and safe and comfortable and it looks real boss so go check that out tpublic.com slash tech stuff don't forget to follow us on instagram and i'll talk to you again really soon for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 